You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Ezra Klein Show. I am a big user, as a lot of people are, of a chat program called Slack. It is how everybody at Vox communicates. It is a weird thing if you're at Vox. It's a room of people who are completely silent because we are all using Slack. The man behind Slack is Stuart Butterfield. And the history behind it is really interesting. Butterfield was also one of the founders of Flickr. And both Slack and Flickr emerge out of his longtime effort to build a continuous, never-ending video game. Both times that that project proved ultimately too daunting and out of what was created to build that video game came a tremendous, extraordinary piece of software. In the case of Slack, it is believed to be the fastest growing piece of enterprise software uh, in history. It's now worth billions of dollars. Three or four years ago, it didn't exist. Stuart is also just a really interesting, thoughtful guy. He's a philosophy major from college and, and actually did graduate work in it. He is a deep thinker. He's calm and has perspective in a way I think a lot of folks in his industry don't. This discussion gets surprisingly philosophical about games, about discipline, about how to live a good life, about communication, about the future and present of technology. I enjoyed it immensely. Uh, and, and I really, really enjoyed some of the weirder places we went in, in the back half. We talk about the ways in which virtual reality and drug use are similar. Uh, I think people really like this episode. So as always, I have three quick requests for you. Please share the show. Please listen to my other podcast, The Weeds. Please email me your guest recommendations at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. With that said, and without further ado, here is Stuart Butterfield. Stuart, thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. No problem. My pleasure. So why don't we begin way back? What, what did you major in in college? Philosophy. What kind of philosophy? Well, I wanted to do cognitive science, but uh, the school didn't have a cognitive science program. So that's linguistics, neuropsych, philosophy, and computer science. And if I did a neuroscience degree, that would have been no electives for the whole four years. And if I did a philosophy degree, I would have a lot of time free. So I kind of stumbled into philosophy. As an undergrad, I did uh, logic and philosophy of mind. And then I went on and did a master's degree in philosophy of science, especially philosophy of biology. Do you feel that that training ended up mattering for you? 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, so here's the more cynical version of it. Sure. A couple thousand years ago, any area of inquiry was philosophy, and then kind of one by one, things peeled off. So geometry and arithmetic really early on, much later on physics, and then biology, and in the 20th century, things like linguistics and psychology and women's studies, until there's really no subject matter left in philosophy at all. So you have to be super, super precise with language. And uh, modern academic philosophy is uh, probably the best practice for truly concise and perspicuous writing that you can undergo. And the, the, you know, the clarity of the arguments has to be there as well. So thinking things through right down to the roots is something you learn there. So this is, it's fascinating me you say that because in early blogging in 2003, 2004, 2005, a lot of the people who proved very good at it at the outset had philosophical training. And the reason they were so good was that in a world where you did not have the contacts to do reporting, to get access to newsmakers, to, to break news, what they had was an incredible precision around argument and a recognition of when something a politician said did not add up, when something was internally inconsistent, that they were able to train like a laser on the political sphere and actually add a kind of value that was very different than traditional reporting. How does that training work? How do you learn in philosophy to understand the component parts of, of an argument and bring that out of the philosophical context and into the broader world? So it's probably different for different people. And people today who took philosophy courses in, in college can have wildly different ideas of what philosophy even means because there's the continental traditions, which are much more poetical, let's say. But for me, I studied logic. And so, I mean, the, we use logic in a pretty loose and sometimes almost meaningless way in the regular world where we say something is or isn't logical because it makes empirical sense as opposed to it's like a necessary truth. So a lot of that training was doing very, very long multi-hour or multi-day logical proofs, um, which is not that dissimilar from doing arithmetic in terms of like the the thought processes. As for why that would apply well to political analysis, I'm, I, mean, I think it's probably applies equally well to any area of inquiry. You said you went to graduate school in this. What happens after graduate school for you? How do you end up in computer engineering? So I arrived at college in 92. And when we got there, we all got an account on the school's Unix system and discovered the internet right then. So there was technically a World Wide Web at that point, but it wasn't a very big or significant component of the internet as a whole. And it became just completely mind-blowing to me. So first of all, I had friends at, at other colleges, and I can keep in touch with them via email. But the big thing was Usenet, like a worldwide kind of discussion board divided into different topics. So if you were interested in poetry of Wordsworth or something like that, or if you're interested in philosophy, or if you're interested in model trains, or if you're interested in the Grateful Dead, which was the, the biggest part of, of Usenet. And you could find these people around the world that you would never otherwise have an opportunity to meet. There was early messaging programs like Talk and IRC, which is, you know, we'll get into it later, but it's, it's very much an inspiration for Slack. And I was just completely fascinated by that. And as I went through college, the web kind of became a thing. I taught myself HTML really early on, and then my summer job all the way through was making web pages for people. So that was always in the background. 
And I didn't have any good plan other than become a philosophy professor. And the academic year in 97, 98 was when I finished my master's. It was also like the very beginning of the dot-com era. So I had a good friend who finished his PhD that year, and he went on to uh, apply for jobs. And, you know, he went to a great school, was a good student, and had a good thesis area, and got just a terrible, terrible job. And I thought about how many hoops I had to still jump through to get to that point. Meanwhile, my friends who had moved to San Francisco and started doing web development stuff were making twice as much money, and it was this new, exciting, dynamic era. And I could do that, and I decided that I would go do that at least for a while, and then we'll see if I come back to academia. So I love asking people this. Do you remember what the first thing you ever looked up online was? I don't know if the first thing I ever looked up, but the first argument I ever settled, which is like a great um, <laughs> tradition on the internet, yeah, was someone was over at our house and we were arguing about whether the Richter scale was logarithmic. And I don't think he under knew if he understood what logarithmic meant, but we got into how many earthquakes, you know, of like Richter scale three there were in a year. And this was actually, I didn't look it up on the web, but it's a, a, something very much similar to the web called Gopher um, and went to the U.S. Geological Survey Gopher site and looked up the number of earthquakes of different magnitudes around the world each year. And that would have been 92 or 93. I, I remember about how many arguments have been set yes. by someone whipping out their phone. There's a great How I Met Your Mother up. opening. It's a, a sitcom if you don't watch it, where they sort of have like 2015 or 13 or whatever it was. And they're, or I'm sorry, it was like 2006. Uh, and they're arguing over what is the most popular food in America and somebody's you know, I'm saying it's pizza and somebody's saying hamburgers and somebody's saying it's Chinese food. And then it's like 2015 and they're just looking at their phone and said, it's bread, just bread. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember for me there, I was a big video game nerd as a kid and electronic gaming monthly back then. I don't remember if it was Mortal Kombat two or three, but Mortal Kombat two or three was coming out and the first pictures had just been leaked. And in the magazine, it said that you could find more pictures. And it was this very long URL. It was like, you know, John Carmichael or somebody's like actual website. And my dad worked at a university, as still does. And he, I, I went to his office on a weekend with him so we could like fire up Mosaic browser and look at these early pictures <laughs> of Mortal Kombat 2. And that was my introduction to, to, to the web. Like that, that was where my whole digital life began. Which seems small, but I mean, this idea that you could actually find something like that was really powerful and profound. It's ramifications that are going to echo for another couple thousand years, I think. I want to get into early communication on the web because you were talking about IRC, and I'd love to talk a little bit about that because I was definitely someone who, when I began to find things like IRC and forums and all this, took to it like a fish to water. Communicating online was really natural for me in a way. I'm not sure that everybody felt. So what spaces of online communication attracted you early and why? I wish I could come up with something that makes me sound cooler than this, but it was 23 years ago. So such is life. Um, a friend of mine went to college at Occidental in California and ended up hanging with a crew of people who are almost all from Massachusetts and Vermont, New England area. And they were super into the band Fish. This is 1993, 23 <laughs> years ago. 
And no one had ever heard of fish, certainly not on the West Coast. So they kind of brought it there. And my friend introduced me to it. And I grew up in Victoria, British Columbia. So very far away and certainly an area where there, there probably wasn't anyone else in my whole town who had ever heard of fish. But I could go down to the computer lab in the basement of the Clara Hugh building at the University of Victoria. And then there was this whole world. And I could talk to people who were in Burlington, Vermont, but also in Atlanta, or in New York or in Chicago who had tapes. And this was like the way before Napster, the way that the internet facilitated the trading of music was we had dual deck audio cassette <laughs> setups and would dub tapes and put them into padded envelopes and exchange addresses over the uh, the internet and then mail the tapes to one another. So that was like, that was a big thing for me, but also just going in and looking up, you know, pretty much anything kind of skirting from community to community. And there was this really early, you know, like 20 years-ish before Instagram idea of creating a persona or a presentation of yourself in these in the context of these communities. And when you only had ASCII characters to do that, it came down to, you know, the style of your writing, the handle that you chose, and things like the signature file at the bottom of your posts. So like, you know, maybe would have your address here or some other information about you or some kind of ASCII art thing and quotations that you admired. That part of it was fascinating because you would conjure up the people on the other end out of these little fragments and signals in no more impoverished of a way than you would conjure up a picture of people in novels. And I remember the first time I ever got a crush on someone over the internet who I'd never met. I don't you know, I didn't even know what she looked like. And that would have been like, you know, 93 or 94, somewhere in that era. But before I ask my real follow-up here, how many fish shows have you seen? I haven't seen any since the late 90s, but probably like about 30, something like that. That's a good number. Uh, I've, I've only seen yeah. three fish shows, but they were good. I met the girl I went to prom with at a related, a Phil Less show. The whole jam band so, world had a big place in my heart in high school. I won't lord it over you. Number <laughs> that I've attended. So, so that's an interesting point you were making a second ago, though that that it emerged online these different signifiers to give people individual characteristics, and I, I I've never thought about it quite the way you put it there, but you're right. Avatars and signatures they ended up having a big influence in how you thought about the people you were communicating with. Because I think it becomes important for what you create later on, what struck you as different or unusual or mannered or important in the way building relationships with people online worked? I don't mean romantic relationships. I just mean human ones. It's a, it's a really tough one. I mean, first of all, I th the plasticity of identity, there's so many threads are, are tied in together here for me. But obviously, you go back 500 or 1,000 years, and for most everyone, wherever you lived in the world, your identity was fairly fixed from the time that you were born. I mean, so your ethnic and religious affiliations, your kind of role, the kind of job that you would have, you know, people would be assigned to a guild when they were children, um, or they would inherit the the crafts of their parents and take those on. There wasn't a whole lot of freedom to go, you know, be yourself or find yourself or something like that in 14th century Germany or 6th century China or wherever. And over the course of the 20th century, not just from the 60s, but like from you know early modernity and the 1960s and then like the punk movement, you could just 
progressively have more and more control over the idea of who you are as a person and the kind of things that you're interested in. And as opposed to traditional face paint and ceremonial costumes or something like that, people get to choose what band's t-shirts they wear and, you know, maybe what political party they're going to vote for and where they like to travel all the way up to the contemporary world Instagram photos of your food. So one, there's a lot more freedom. And two, I think, I'm not sure if this is really true or not, but it's, you know, certainly how it felt at the time. Early online participants, like in the 90s, early 2000s, would have the feeling and express it that, that you could get to really know someone because you, all you had was their words. You didn't have how they, you know, what they looked like, what the color of their hair was, how tall they were. Um, and... I think there, you know, there's definitely something to that. I'm not sure that that is the words that you are able to type on a standard keyboard and push over the, the wires of the internet to the screen on the other end are are necessarily the truest essence of who you are as a person in some kind of fundamental spiritual sense or something like that. But it was interesting to have that constraint because it's you know it's kind of interesting to have any constraint on something and see what is people are able to express within that. Sorry. Ezra, I don't even know what the question was anymore. It's a good topic. <laughs> well, it is a good topic. I want to key, I want to stay in it because I think it's a really, I think it's something that we actually don't talk about enough given how important it is to our, our lives now. Something you just said stuck with me and something I've thought about a lot over the years, which is something that is true about society typically is that there are a couple of identities we are willing to have people foreground. So you can foreground your college identity, right? I went to UCLA or Harvard or Yale or Ohio State. You can foreground your religious identity, your geographic identity, your sports team identity, your occupational identity. I'm a journalist or a coder. And we accept that. If I come up to you and we start talking and the first thing I really begin talking to you about is my love of the Red Sox, that feels normal. It's normalized. And one of the things that's always felt to me really important about the internet is that it made it acceptable for people who felt internally that a different identity of theirs was at the foreground to make that their primary identity, that you loved a particular fantasy novel series or a particular set of video games or a particular band, or you were interested in geology on the side or, you know, whatever it is. And that that feels to me to be a way the internet has actually increased people's freedom to define themselves. Because I think a lot of people don't have super strong identities around the more limited set that are normalized, but end up having extraordinarily strong identities about, you know, being a member of a Reddit forum that does Photoshop battles. And creating that space has feels to me like one of the things the internet did that is really important for human flourishing, but that we, I think, still don't quite know how to talk about or think about or even know if we think it's a good a good development yet. To me, it's just totally, it's a little bit like the, the water that the fish are swimming in, I think, at this point. But from the perspective of a couple hundred years from now, it will become much more obvious and interesting. And that's that people can reach anyone, this point-to-point, peer-to-peer. So for me, it was I was interested in fish. There was no one locally, but I could find people around the world, people who I never in you know, um, a thousand years prior to the internet would have ever come into contact with. 
And the same thing would be true of people who were breast cancer survivors or model train enthusiasts or you know whatever their their thing was. And certainly the ones that were the you know the aspects of people's identity that were riskier to present in public, um, because the, you know the stuff that you get to to choose in terms of the your hairstyle or your clothing and the very initial bits of small talk you might make with someone when you meet them are fairly limited. And there's all kinds that people would never bring up you know, their passion for alternative World War II histories or some less accepted sexual fetish or whatever that you know that they could find their community for online gave people a lot more avenue to explore who they are and, and what they're actually interested in. I think that's almost certainly a good thing, but when you get any new power in a pretty big and substantial way and it happens all at once, it takes a while for for people to reconcile themselves with it. Yeah, I think I think that is very much right. Although I will never be embarrassed or apologize for my love of Harry Turtledove novels. Alternative World <laughs> War II history is is the truly great art form invented um, in the post-war era. So you famously both Flickr and Slack emerge out of your effort to create a sort of endless all in, I shouldn't say all encompassing, but it, but endless video game. And I'm curious how these things play into each other. Were there dimensions of the early internet that made you and the way you communicated and the way you found people that bled into your belief that you could create a world that was continuous and to the player at least big enough to be endless and set you on that path. Yeah. So there's, in the case of Flickr, the company was called Ludicorp. We started it in order to make a web-based massively multiplayer game. And that one was called Game Never Ending. Didn't work. We ended up making Flickr. Fast forward seven years and uh, more or less the same group of people tried again. This time it was called Glitch and it still didn't work. And we ended up with Slack. So in both cases, it's hard to feel terrible about the failure. But the motivation for both of those was really the same. So it was that early internet experience. And it was the fact that you take some, you know, some constraint because rather than here's a random group of people from around the world and we're just going to talk about anything. We have, you know, like we have nothing in common and we're going to try to triangulate to find out what we're interested in. There was typically some topic or some function or, you know, it was like this game or World War II alternative histories or whatever it was that, that brought us together. And the context of games really does that very well. I've used these examples so many times that they're kind of rote for me, but my father is a big bridge fan and he doesn't really like playing bridge against the computer at all. Like he has no interest unless there's a human on the other end of it. And he also wouldn't invite the same three people that he plays bridge with over to his house just to do nothing. But there's something about the context of the bridge game. That's like the exercise of the skill in this, this set of constraints in the game of bridge and the trash talking and the competitive nature. And I'm not even sure exactly what it is, but using play as the basis for a social medium and for this really pleasant kind of interaction is something that I've always been fascinated with. So I like playing board games. And I've probably given a collection of three or four other people who I otherwise have nothing in common with and may not have anything in common with. I may not even like them in the end. If you just put us in a room for two hours and say, pass the time that seems like it would be less likely to be an interesting experience. Although who knows, maybe if you actually lock the door, um, <laughs> than one where here you go, go play Settlers of Catan or, you know, here's some brand new game that you've never played before. 
because there is this constraint on the kinds of activities and, and part of your brain is already taken care of. So the idea was that we could create a world, a very simple world where there were some constraints and there were some rules and there was this game. And the game was the excuse for socializing because otherwise it might stream, seem strange to people that they would go and meet strangers on the internet. And especially that's much less weird now in 2016 than it appeared certainly in popular culture in the late 90s and into the early 2000s. I don't know if you remember, like the, but the canonical vision of the internet user in the popular imagination was like, like a New Yorker editorial cartoon of like a super obese man in his underwear in the basement, kind of hunched over a computer. Like that's what people who use the internet were, as opposed to everyone in the world. And the idea of a game, again, is like a, as a pretext or an excuse or a rationale for being able to spend this time together was something that we were really fascinated with. So the game itself didn't matter so much as long as it was repeatable. And there's a great book by um, a theologian named James Carse called Finite and Infinite Games, and I might get this paraphrase a little bit wrong, but the, it starts off with, there are at least two kinds of games finite games, which are played for the purpose of winning, and infinite games, which are played for the purpose of continuing the play. And that was what we were, the second thing, obviously, was what we were trying to make, something that people could evolve and define as they go, the kind of best kind of play you have as a child, like the most enjoyable kind. However, that is way too lofty and difficult to explain to people, especially when you've you already have this like one axis called games. So people are going to interpret whatever it is on the other end. If something falls into the category of games, I want to know like, is it an RTS game? Is it a first person shooter? Or is it a you know puzzle game? And then once I have that bit of information, I want to know what genre is it? So is it like post-apocalyptic sci-fi or is it World War II or something like that? And when we would try to explain, say, no, 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 wait, back up. This is like absurd and surreal and kind of Monty Python-esque and Dr. Seuss-esque and really creative and open-ended. Eyes would glaze over pretty quick, except for, you know, a fraction of a percent or you know, a couple percent of people who were super fascinated and in love with the idea. But it was never going to be something that was commercially successful enough that it would have made a great business. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. 
At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's Burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. Wait, though, I, I am in love with this idea. I have read a bunch of pieces about the, the game you tried to create, and I've never heard what you just said, that it was an excuse, a, a construct, a structure to, to allow communication. So tell me a little bit about the principles that change if you're not trying to build a game people can win, but a game people want to continue that facilitates the construction of relationships. Where do you start that is different there? Well, first of all, it's just way harder in one sense. I mean, it's also, it's hard to design a winnable, finite game that's actually good because I'm sure you've played plenty of games that really aren't very good or aren't that fun. And if you took the the bottom 90% of games in the iOS app store, they're probably mostly pretty terrible. So I don't want to discount the skill that goes into making a, a good regular old game. But hour 10 is fairly hard and hour 100 and hour 500 that someone might be playing some game, it becomes more and more difficult to to find the kind of the right amount of complexity and the right amount of open-endedness. So if it's too open-ended, then I don't have anything to go on and I'm not engaged in the beginning and it's just boring. But if it's too closed and rigid, then I've exhausted all the possibilities by the time I've been in there for 10 hours. I mean, most hardcore, massively multiplayer games, like say World of Warcraft, by far the most successful, to a certain extent, people would just go and hang out with friends. And it was a, kind of a, an excuse to talk to people. But there was a team of hundreds, or I guess probably even thousands of people, endlessly creating new content for people to explore. Because if they were going to come in twice a week for three hours, there needed to be new stuff. And in the absence of a team of professionals, you know, super well-equipped and trained with all these tools and all these, you know, all this intellectual property that they can call upon to create those experiences where if you have to create them yourself, it's much harder. So then while we were doing this, or, you know, around the time that we decided, eh, this is never going to work and we're going to shut it down and find something else to do, Minecraft came out. And that was just the right amount of simplicity and complexity that people could play it forever. Now, it wasn't the thing that we were trying to build because it wasn't about community and there wasn't a lot of dynamics that supported social or economic or political interaction within the context of the game. But it was a really, really great balance of simplicity and complexity, like the degree of constraints that it had and the amount of open-endedness that people would play for hours and hours. So something that this makes me think about a bit, and, and I apologize because this is a, a thought I've been working on recently or toying with recently, particularly around Pokemon Go and other things. So I'm not sure I'll be able to articulate it clearly. But 
It feels to me that the move to VR and AR gaming is actually very related to this distinction you're making. And that we are now watching designers, game designers, try to create worlds that are not something you just want to dip in and play in, but ultimately are going to be something closer to the a world you want to live in. Having used some of the VR headsets and so forth, I don't know if you've read Re- Ready Player One, that the, the the book about a sort of VR dystopia. I haven't, no. But so it, when you say VR dystopia, it's pretty... Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I kind of <laughs> buy that. I don't think that it will be that hard. Um, I'm not to say it'll be technically easy, but given 10 more years of this technology advancing, I think for a lot of people who have been a little bit left out of society, I do not know that it will be that hard to create a kind of immersive gaming environment that is preferable for them much of the time to to the environment they live in. And there's a way, and, and, and this is where the thought gets a little bit weird, there's a way in which games like this feel to me a little bit more like a substitute for drugs than games. That they are a different space that allows a different kind of communication that people want to just keep doing. And I don't think as a society we're we're quite gonna know how to handle that when it when it gets good enough that it's a real a, a real alternative. I totally agree. And it brought to mind, unfortunately, I have no idea what it was called. I was testing out a new TV when I got it. And one of the things on the smart TV was a Vimeo channel. And so I clicked on it and I was looking at original kind of short films that people had uploaded to Vimeo. And there was this one that looked like, you know, it's maybe 15, 20 years from now. And the people that would have been meth heads in a squat in the South were instead strapped to VR headsets and you know otherwise had a had a pretty similar life so we are biological entities and there's all kinds of systems that are set up and a lot of psychotropic drug drug use is just a physical substance that hits some receptor that was obviously designed for something else but when you um, wash your brain with this chemical you have all these experiences which are it's difficult to overcome the desire to do that again. And I can definitely see VR getting to that state. Uh, the movie WALL-E with the uh, people kind of mm-hmm. strapped to the little hover chairs and a, and a headset wrapped around their head who are just kind of checked out and we're barely even biological animals anymore, but we're just like part of the Borg system is something that I can imagine coming true if we're not careful. Yeah, and, and careful is such an interesting word there because the, the thing that I find fascinating about this particular dystopia is or this particular vision of the future, maybe it's not a dystopia, maybe it's great, maybe it's what we've been we've been trying to reach all along. But the thing I find interesting about it is that when it comes to, to psychotropic drugs, the way our society regulates these substances is to make them illegal is to make their access very hard, is to make it illegal to advertise them, illegal to sell them, illegal to take them. We really try to increase the barrier to usage so much to say nothing of of the cultural stigma that, you know, I mean, the, the message from the broader society is very clear and it is enforced across a, a myriad of ways. When it comes to this kind of consumer electronics, we have exactly the opposite view. We want to keep making it better. 
We are going to prize designers who are able to make this stuff truly addictive. I think we are all impressed by the World of Warcraft designers, impressed by the designers of Minecraft. This will come up later, but I'm, I'm impressed by Slack, which is addictive in its own way. We're going to keep making the technology better. We're going to advertise the shit out of this stuff. We're going to test it to make it more addictive. We are going to get better and better and better and better at this. And within the cultural construct for how we treat these kinds of electronics and these kinds of consumer experiences, we have no precedent, no rationale for restriction. I'm not saying we should have, or I'm not arguing for a war on video games, but I am saying that I don't know that we have really thought through what that is going to mean. And I'm not sure we're really going to be able to, because I'm not a fan of the drug war, but I think that there are reasons for the stigmas that have emerged and in, in many cases been enforced. Again, obviously not always well or correctly, but I don't know how we would even think about making a jump to a place where we treated, you know, the Oculus VR 12 as some kind of restricted substance. But in a world where we can't even sort of talk about that, uh, that, that sort of thing, I think we're going to end up with a lot of people, you know, potentially on some kind of like universal basic income or basic level of government support at a time when maybe structural unemployment will be a lot higher due to automation. And, you know, looking at folks in, in a version of that Vimeo video you talked about. Yeah, that's, um, it's daunting. And so, I, I mean, we'll see. So first of all, I can't put on a VR headset for more than about five minutes at this point before right. <laughs> I'm either bored or I feel a little bit motion sick. So it's not it's not quite that level of problem yet. And perhaps if we got to that point where 15% of the population was checked out, lying on the floor, kind of drooling while using their headsets, then there would be that kind of reaction. Because pre-opium war China, there wasn't any restrictions on the use of opium. But then once they saw the impact, you know, and they saw 15% of the population just checked out. Then they were like, oh, shit, we got to make a law here. So I think it would definitely be reactionary. Like, there's not going to be a whole lot of speculative legislation that I'm worried about this might happen in the future. But it's also, the whole thing is a matter of degree, right? Because it's there's always been appeals to our desires and, and sensory pleasures. And I mean things that go all the way back to, like, the 15th century cathedral in France and the swinging of the censer back and forth and the incense and the chanting and the stained glass windows that would have been just mind-blowing, presumably, to a, to a French peasant from the countryside, up to the perfectly coiffed Elvis in the late 50s and the movies and the advertisements and like the jingles on the radio and all that kind of stuff. We are susceptible to all kinds of influences and desires and stimulus. And the ones that seem like that are beyond our threshold for uh, for for managing or I'm not even trying to say it like that you know they it goes beyond our discretion or our, our like ability to elect to engage with something and we're have a compulsion to engage with it then suddenly we have to clamp it down and, and put some some edges on what's acceptable behavior so that I mean I could see that happening and it could also be the opposite would be that the there is some, you know, perceived to be some redemptive value in the time that you spend in a virtual reality environment that it is like akin to meditation and it is the, you know, dropping of the the world of desires and this entering into this like totally pure 
consciousness that would have been the aim of all kinds of Buddhists for the last couple hundred years. So who knows? It, it will be interesting. So far, the whole history of the human race has been pretty pretty interesting. And it's <laughs> always tempting to say that this is the moment. And I, this is sure seems like a moment. And it'll probably also seem like a moment a hundred years from now and, and a thousand years from now. It's kind of hard to imagine where it just stops and we're like, okay, we've reached stasis and we're not interested in anything else. Oh, I definitely, yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, to some degree, I think we've already had a bunch of these moments, right? I mean, we really do spend a lot of time watching television, looking at smartphones. I think if you, if you explained our attention equilibrium now to someone a hundred years ago, it would, I don't know if they would see it as dystopic or amazing, but it would, it would seem like we had hit a moment, right? Like that, that, that's really fucking different, mm -hmm. you know, and I, yeah, and it'd I, be almost impossible to, to imagine, I think. Yeah. From the perspective of 1960, I mean, never mind World War One. so make it, you know, 1908 or something like that. For anyone living in anywhere in the world, I think this moment would have been completely unimaginable. So twice you try to create this open-ended play-to-continue game, and, and, and twice you ultimately decide it isn't working. What was the moment each time where you looked at it and said, this actually isn't possible? What was the problem you were facing? So the first one we started in the kind of spring and early summer of 2002. So if you cast your mind back to then, this is post.com crash, but also after WorldCom and Enron accounting scandals and then the 9-11 attacks. So the NASDAQ was off 80% and S&P 500 was off 65%. And there wasn't a whole lot of people interested in investing in internet stuff in the general sense. And certainly not in consumer-facing internet things. And of those, the idea of a massively multiplayer game was just not attractive <laughs> as an investment vehicle for anyone. People were freaked out. I mean, like this was still – that was a time where it wasn't as severe perhaps as our perception of what could go wrong in the financial world as 2008. But it was you know, kind of like a 1968 maybe in terms of our – general levels of fear in the world and distrust in the systems that we had developed and stuff like that. So in that case, it was just, wow, this is going to take a long time. We built this prototype. The prototype was fairly successful by the standards we created and just no one would invest. So we got down to the point where we had um, the one person on the team was getting paid was the one person who had kids at that time. And we had to find something that we could complete more quickly because we figured it was going to take us about two, two and a half years to actually get to market. And Flickr was that thing, you know, kind of we had the idea. It was very much based on the technology we'd already developed. So three months after we decided we were going to do it, it launched. It was a very different product than what it ended up being at first. It was more based on the game technologies. It was more real time and chat was a bigger element of it. And people forget that that even existed, but it morphed really quickly over the next six months. And at the same time, the interest started coming back into the internet, people's confidence in the markets returned. And like now we're like in the beginning of 2004 and into the summer of 2004. And th this was a viable business. People wanted to invest. We got like Esther Dyson and Reed Hoffman and a bunch of people to give us money and it became a business. And then we ended up selling it to Yahoo. So after that, in early 2009, despite the fact that there was the financial crisis that was affecting like systems of finance and real estate seemed precarious, the venture capitalists still had a lot of money. We were a known quantity, so myself and three co-founders 
Cal Henderson, Sergey Morchoff, and Eric Costell, all of whom were on the original Flickr team. We decided we're going to start this new company. We're going to do it again. But you know, again, it's seven years later, and wow, like the hardware is now basically free from the perspective of seven years ago. And there's all this amazing open source software, and there's like an order of magnitude more people online. We can't possibly fail. Like there's just you know everything is in our favor now. We were able to raise a whole bunch of money, but uh, after close to three and a half years. We had built all this stuff, and like some of it was just technically amazing. The messaging system and the kind of backend, the content development pipeline tools, like this, I don't even know, millions and millions of frames of animation and hundreds of hours of music composed and recorded, and all of this, all of this stuff that we had made was really good and high quality, but it didn't assemble into something that made sense to enough people. So like there was a, a small proportion of people who would try it who just became fanatical and would would pay us a lot of money and would play for many hours. But the you know 95% of people who tried it were bailed out, you know, in the within the first hour and most of those within the first five minutes. So that was made it obvious that it was a big challenge. And I think that we probably would have persevered because we we're getting better at it and we we're learning more about what we needed to build in order for it to be successful. But we had built everything around Flash and desktop computers because we got started in 2009. And like right, you know, a year into that, this transition started that we obviously noticed as consumers because we all got smartphones. But I don't think we really realized the ramifications of. And while we were developing this, it went from maybe 2% of people's discretionary computing time, so not time at work and not time like doing online banking or something like that, but like the social uses of the internet and computing technology that went from like 0% or 2% mobile to you know 90% or 95%. And we were stuck with a set of technologies that didn't translate to, to mobile. It would have been a, you know, around the equivalent of just starting over again. So the end of 2012 was this moment where we still had lots of money left in the bank, but it was clear that we were never going to get this to be the kind of business that would justify the $17.5 million in venture capital that we had raised. It could be like something that paid the salaries of the people who are working on it, and it kind of continued at an equilibrium for a long time. That didn't work with the way things were, were set up. So pretty different moments. And one time we were starved for capital, another time we had all the resources we could need, but we had made a bunch of decisions, both on the design side and the technology side, that kind of boxed us into a corner. The interesting thing was that we developed all this stuff with 45 people, and making a game of that magnitude, you know, like I said, millions of frames of animation and all music and all these level designs and puzzles that had been built and all this crazy art and tools that allow you to build the world, we were incredibly productive. And I think one of the reasons we were able to do that, to coordinate the work of the back-end programmers and the front-end programmers and the level designers and the content pipeline tool developers and the musicians and the artists and the animators, was because we had been using this internal system that was a bunch of stuff we had built on top of IRC. And we used IRC because when we started the company, there was four of us, one in San Francisco, one in New York, and two in Vancouver, British Columbia. And we, so we were geographically split. And the thing that made sense to us for 
group level communication was IRC because we're all familiar with it. It's kind of has that model, which later became essential to Slack of the channel as the the space where you addressed a message as opposed to the individual. So that when we hired the fifth person and then the 15th person and the 25th person, everyone had access to all this history. Everyone could see what everyone else was doing across the company. There's a very high level of coordination. So the technical operations team could see what was coming up for customer support and where was a problem they might have to address. The engineers could see what the designers are working on next. The level builders could see what the artists who are working on environmental art were coming up with. And there could be a little bit of back and forth on how it should be developed. And in any team, any contacts, any, any kind of group project that's aimed at something in, in particular, one of the hardest parts is just lateral communication and coordination. Like you put all these mechanisms into place, things like the stand-up meeting and the status report and the all hands and, and stuff like that in order to ensure that A, people are in alignment and they understand what the goals are and B, that they're aware of what everyone else is doing. And we just got all that for free. And it wasn't conscious at all. Like we just, we used IRC and when something, some problem around internal communication was so irritating that we couldn't stand it anymore, then we would take the minimum number of minutes and address that and then go back to what we were supposed to be doing. Or when some opportunity for improvement was so obvious that we just like, ah, we got to do it, we would do that and then go back to what we we're doing. And that process is, turns out, is like just an amazing way to design software because normally there's a whole lot of ego and a whole lot of speculation and a lot i can imagine that users would want to whatever and like this is my precious design that i came up with and so it's better than your precious design and we're going to do mine but this was speculationless egoless just addressing the problem and then when we addressed it letting it cook for like months you know of people real people really using it not in a way that they're evaluating something that they might use but like relying on it in a day-to-day -day working environment to see how good it could be so at the time we decided to shut down the game we had designed this whole system that was like the proto slack but we didn't even know it like we you know we wasn't we weren't really conscious of it and then we realized that we were never going to work without a system like this again and therefore other people might like it too. So that was a pretty, with hindsight and in retrospect, it was a very graceful transition. At the time, it didn't feel like that at all. At the time, it felt like kind of panicked and super disappointing. And the only real silver lining on having to shut down the game was that we did it when we still had money in the bank so that we were able to do it gracefully. Like We were able to say to customers, you can have your money back, you can let us keep it, or we can donate it to charity on your behalf. And we were able to say to all the employees who were going to lose their jobs that we were going to give them generous severance and we were going to spend the time to help them find jobs. And we put this whole site together with people's resumes and portfolios and did spent like a month doing reference calls and made sure that every single person got a job. So that at least didn't feel like we had failed so many people. But we ended up in this position where we had a great design for a system that we knew worked in practice and we, we still had the resources to make it a reality. But this sounds like a cultural oddity of the places you work at or run or help run. I mean, Flickr, as I understand it, comes out of a somewhat similar, not exactly the same, but somewhat similar process. And I mean, I've worked at many places where we have software tools that are not that good. And the thing we do about it is we bitch about it. 
And I think that is what most people in most places do. They bitch about it. They don't fix it. They don't try to create something new. They don't add on. And I think that's true to a lot of technology companies too. So what is it? Why do you think you have had or created the culture that takes this kind of care with the tools that are not the product itself? I think it's the people, you know, so like the, it's myself and three engineers were the co-founders and each of them has been, you know, had, first of all, we've been working together for a really long time. Like Cal Henderson is a CTO of Slack. I've been working with the least long because we only started working together in 2003. So we've only been working together for 13 years as opposed to Sergey Morichov. I've been working with for 18 years now. So there's a high degree of trust, but they're also, Sergey is a backend programmer, worked on, this is too too much to explain in this context, but a way of serializing live Java processes so that they could be put to sleep and woke up again um, in the early days. So he did all this really hard work on complicated, concurrent, multi-threaded backend systems. I met Eric Costello because I ran this thing called the 5K contest in like 1999, 2000, 2001, which was kind of a reaction to bloated websites. And it became this huge thing in the, in the web design and development world, like what what's the best website you can make in under five kilobytes? And he was someone who entered that contest and I kept in touch and he invented a lot of, pioneered and made the first examples of what was then called remote scripting, but later became Ajax and was the basis of all kinds of complicated web applications from like Google Maps to live editing of documents inside of a web browser. And then Cal actually wrote almost all of Flickr before he was an employee on his commute from rural village in England into London um, without internet access. So he would just develop it locally and was sort of like a superb wonderkind. So there's a lot of like innovative ability and kind of deep interest in, in technology and deep kind of understanding of the limits and the constraints and what was possible. And just like a, a really good team. So it's not, I don't think it's like the common thread isn't I was there and I did a bunch of like super genius stuff that caused it to happen. It was really this dynamic that we had where we were able to talk about an idea for something that we wanted to build and then almost immediately build the simplest possible version of it and see how it worked. And then sometimes you say, oh, that's great. That's what I anticipated. And let's keep going. And other times you say, hmm, okay, that was actually, now I understand why that's not going to work and let's try something else. And when you're able to do that at a really rapid rate, it's obviously far, far easier to come up with stuff that really works. What was it about Slack that felt different to you? Because when, when you were doing this, this was a context in which there was campfire context in which there was hip chat. I mean, it wasn't that no commercial internal communication tools existed. So what felt to you like it made Slack different? And I'm curious if that was really the thing that ended up making Slack different. Well, so at the time we were doing it, we didn't really know about those things. So we had built top of IRC. I'm sure that I had heard of Campfire and I'd probably heard of hip chat by the um, closer to the end, but we had already kind of gone all in on our, our own thing. As for like why they've been more successful, I think there's a lot of little reasons. Like I could rattle off a bunch of features that are different. So for example, one of the things that we thought was essential to using a system like this was given the volume of information, being able to track the point up to which you had read across all these different channels. So in the same way that your Kindle will sync you to the same page on your phone 
and on the Kindle device, we would sync your use of Slack across all the you know, your mobile phone and the desktop and a different desktop to make sure that you had read up to the same point. And that isn't like some feature that just people see and then they're blown away and they can't believe how amazing it is and they throw away whatever they were using before and flock to using Slack. But it's an example of like one little thing that makes a pretty substantial difference in the amount of cognitive load you have to in order to use the system. So I think those are probably the reasons that it was successful. After we decided that we were going to make Slack, we kind of said, oh, we should check what else there already is in the world. And we just didn't think any of it was good enough. Like, the, you know, we thought that we could do better. And in some ways, we already had done better. In other ways, we just thought it's either not elegant enough or not beautiful enough or not simple enough or just not the way that we would have done it. And therefore, we should do it ourselves. But also, the other part was, despite the fact that these things already existed, they were used by approximately 0% of the world. You know, And now, to, to be fair, Slack is maybe used by... 1% of all the people who could be using it around the world. So it's not like we're, we've completely triumphed and are all the way there. But almost no one was even aware of these kinds of systems. So you're saying... One you're, of the... Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to joke. You're saying the size of the market opportunity is very large. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> and when you're 0% of the way there, it look, sure looks like a, an opportunity. The other thing is that this is what like software developers do. Like Every person who learns how to code almost invariably ends up writing their own task management system because every like kind of to-do list manager reminder or whatever program is dissatisfying in some way to someone and they're going to invent their own. I have done that before because there always seems like, actually hits on some of the themes and something that you wrote recently, it always seems like technology should be better at helping us organize all these things we have to do or all these thoughts that we have or, or, or getting the critical piece of information to the foreground at just the right time, and they never do. And it's not when you're young and naive, you think, oh, that's just because everyone else is an idiot and hasn't done the simple, obvious thing that I just thought of that's going to make it all super simple and easy. And then when you get older and more experienced, you realize it's just really, really, really hard to get it's human beings kind of coordinated and working together. And the example of that I use all the time inside the company is if you and I were to go to a movie and then we're going to decide that we're going to have dinner after, we would just decide that we're going to go have dinner and that's it. Then we go. If, on the other hand, we're at some event with a group of 12 people and we decide that we're going to get dinner, then it's just like this nightmare scenario where sometimes you don't even get dinner because you just you can't get the 12 people to decide and agree and then all get cabs or whatever it is. But it's going to take a minimum of 45 minutes unless someone really puts themselves out there as the leader of this 12-person group and really drives the decision home. Chances are it just won't happen. And that's simple, right? Like That's like we're hungry and we want to get some food and we just can't do it because there's too many of us. So if you're actually trying to do something that's really complicated, that's going to take months, that has like hundreds of thousands of steps that have to be done in a specific order, it's like just phenomenally challenging. So there is no like simple gotcha and just do this one trick and then everyone's going to work well together. But it does seem like that. Like it's very tempting and it's like a, almost like a siren call to people who can code to try to come up with the best way to communicate or the best way to manage tasks or the best way to whatever. Support for The Gray Area comes from Bombas. How's your sock drawer looking these days? Underwhelming? Is it the seat of all your disappointments? A wasteland of unmatched sandpaper rough foot sleeves? 
Well, this spring, you can start looking forward to opening that sock drawer again with Bombas. Finally, I have something to look forward to. Bombas socks have all kinds of features like honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. Bombas also sells clothes for other body parts like t-shirts and underwear. Also, Bombas wants to make returns and exchanges easy with their 100% happiness guarantee. So if the dryer or anything else eats a sock, or if you're unhappy with your purchase for virtually any reason, they say they'll do whatever they can to replace it or make it right. Bombas sent me a few pairs of socks a while back, and they're my favorite socks. I'm literally wearing a pair right now. I know I'm supposed to say nice things here, but it's true. So there you go. You can get comfy this spring and give back with Bombas. Head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. So one of the things that, speaking from my experience, and, and we use like in my organization, but, but I've seen this with a lot of people, one of the reasons I think it took off so much is it is not so much how good it is for work, though it is good for that, but it's actually a lot of fun. It's a very fun way to communicate. It's easy to put in gifts. The reactions are wonderful. It, it helps create culture. At the same time, for that exact reason, it can permeate. It's so good at notifications. It's always on you because of your smartphone that it can take work and push it into every crevice of your life in a way that I worry about for my employees. I worry about for myself. I'm curious how you use that, how you think about that danger, or if you think that is a danger. No, I think it is. I mean, anything that makes you more, that gives you power that you didn't have before takes a little while to learn how to to yield, to wield that power. We have a big advantage in our own use of Slack. First of all, because we designed it, but more because we have now been working this way since 2010. So we're like six years into it, even though the first version, we weren't actually using Slack, we are using our own internal proto version of Slack, but we have just established a bunch of practices and norms for how we use it that make it easier for us. But I can definitely, I mean, I, I talk to enough customers and I see enough, I mean, enough of my friends use it. Some of the, the disadvantages of this kind of success in this line of work is that every person I know uses Slack and I am via Twitter, DM and Facebook message and email and SMS, the personal support concierge for <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of friends and family. So, I mean, I definitely see it and figuring out how to take advantage of that is difficult. I mean, I've personally likened the, this isn't specific to Slack, but just like the the power of communication that used to be this rare and precious thing to get to spend time with friends. Like even if you read letters that people wrote um, in the 19th century, the idea of getting to visit with a friend and spend some time talking to them was like this big, wonderful thing if they lived in a different city. And now you have your choice of a hundred different ways to send some little bit of text or a little bit of video or a bit of like a picture that you've drawn stuff and squiggles on and you've put emoji on or whatever. Like you can just 
you have this whole expressive vocabulary that you can use to communicate with anyone all the time, and it can be just overwhelming so that you get onto a some public transit and you see everyone is heads down kind of drawn into their phones. And I'm not saying this in a disparaging way at all, first of all, because I'm absolutely one of those people. So I liken that to this, you know, for us as a species, the sudden appearance of more or less infinite free calories and the health ramifications for that, the kind of the diabetes that it causes. We just don't know what to do with this sudden like absolute shift in the degree of communication and coordinate um, and like this might sound like a weird word to people but the kind of intimacy that you can have with a large number of people all day every day we just don't know how to deal with that and when i when i say intimacy i mean just like you have this private conversation where you can call upon not just your the words that you can write and the like the things that you can say with your voice but again you know everything that you can do with your camera and every like thing that you can reference everything you can point to the animated gifts like you know this huge vocabulary so i think we as a society are at the very earliest stages of reckoning with this new power and slack is just an example of that so slack is the manifestation of of that just super abundance of communicative power that we all suddenly have, but in the in the context of your office in your in your workplace. But I don't think the challenges are in some fundamental fundamental way different, but they are showing up in a new place. And we spend a lot of time thinking about how to make that easier, how to balance like the kind of the right kind of notifications. I mean, give me one example. We came up with a do not disturb feature. And the obvious reason you might want to add a feature like that is because people feel pestered and they're getting too many notifications. But the actual real motivation for us to do it wasn't so that you, Ezra, don't get a notification when I send you a message. It's that I would hesitate to send you a message at a time that I thought it might disturb you. And so now the onus is on me to remember to send that question to you tomorrow morning when we both get up. Whereas I know that if we if you're not going to be disturbed by it, I can send it to you at a time of my choosing in the same way that you know you can send an email to someone at noon or at 9 p.m. or at 3 a.m. and it doesn't really matter. They'll get to the email when they get to it, which is what we want. You know, that, That's the way that we want people to approach Slack, but it's much harder for people to approach Slack in that way. So we're still observing how people use it and kind of reacting to that and trying to bring the design into a, a place where people get as much of the value out of it as they can and with the fewest number of problems. So one, I love the way you you put that, that we're, we've moved from a place where the problem was a scarcity of intimate communication to an abundance of it. The analogy to calories is very well drawn. But, but to go back to the question a little bit tactically, what guardrails have you set up? I read the Inc. article that said that the motto at your workplace is work hard and go home, that you prize the ability to have a work-life balance. So what, uh, as a organization has been using this for longer than anyone else. What is the culture of Slack use, if not the technicalities of it, that ensure people can work hard and go home, that ensure they don't feel they're always on, that ensure they don't feel like they have to be doing this kind of fake work of keeping up with conversations in rooms that you know may be interesting and maybe work adjacent, but are not literally. How do you guys actually set it up? Well, so some of us do and some of us don't, and some of us are great at it and some of us are are mediocre at it. I'm different, right? Because I'm a CEO. So I'm I work more, or at least I'm more available more of the time. 
because I kind of feel like if there's an emergency, I'm going to have to deal with it. So in some sense, I'm always on call. And then there are people who are literally on call because they're tactical operations people. And for everyone else, there's this continuum. So one of our best engineers, a guy named Johnny Rogers up in Vancouver, he just goes home at six and like he will check maybe once an evening, once in a while, but he has a, I guess at this point, maybe a nine month old baby. And that's what he likes doing, you know, like, and he just doesn't work on the weekends and he's just incredibly productive. And, and that discipline comes entirely from him. He leaves channels when he feels like they're not actually of use to him. He just turns off notifications, puts on do not disturb mode when he goes home. His job function is one that he doesn't actually need to be available all the time. Other people probably also have a job function that doesn't require them to be available all the time, but they feel like they should so that they can be responsive if someone asks them a question. And for them, they'll leave the office at 5.30 p.m. or 6 p.m. and go do stuff, whatever that is, you know, go look shopping, make dinner, pick up kids, whatever, um, help with homework, put them to bed, watch a TV show. But when they have some cognitive capacity, like when they do sit down on the couch and watch a TV show or something, their phone is there and they have notifications on and they will respond to things. And other people just go home and work for a couple hours in the evening. One of the ways that we ensure that people try to actually hew to that work hard and go home is just to repeat it a lot, you know, just to like to say it out loud in all hands and to like literally have it on the wall in the office so that there's a, some reinforcement that that is okay. At the same time, there's all these tracks of feature development that are ways to better support that. So we have a feature where you can star a message, right? And then you can go look at a, a list of your starred messages. It's not presented in a way that has as much utility as I think that could have. Because one of my personal biggest problems and challenges is I get a lot of messages. I don't have time to deal with this message right now, but I want to come back to it. So I mark as unread in, in Slack on the on the phone, you can like long tap on a message to mark it as unread or option click on a message on desktop to, to set the unread point back. And then I have like seven of these things and I keep on thinking that they're new and I check them. I'm like, oh shit, no, that's the same thing as before. And then I mark it as unread again. And now I'm just like 20% of my time is going back to over the same thing and marking them as unread, even though I could use that star feature. So even though I was involved in the design of all these things, I know how all of it works. I still have my own challenges in trying to become as efficient as I can. So one of the things that we're working on is a more effective way of catching up. And I think that if you felt like you had a more effective way of catching up, you would be more willing to to kind of let go and not check for a while if it was going to be really easy to catch up. And we're also working on ways of, of surfacing things that we believe that are going to be especially interesting to you. And we have a huge amount of data to work with there, like the people that you you talk to most frequently, the content of the messages that you send, the content of the messages and the channels that you participate in versus the ones that you don't. We're not making use of all of this stuff yet, but you know, as, as subtle as the text in messages that precede the points at which you send a message. And when we get even better than we are now at predicting the things that are going to be especially interesting to you, and we're actually good at it. I mean, so like if we do a crappy job, none of this counts, but if we're actually good at it, then you get another layer of being able to relax because you know that someone, in this case, like some magical machine learning system, is paying attention on your behalf and will let you know if there's something that's really urgent. 
there's a, a, a huge number of really, really, really hard problems there. Because if I'm away, you know, so here we are, I'm in a studio in San Francisco and I'm going to go back to the office after and a couple of hours worth of things will have happened. And sometimes you'll have a conversation between like Amy and Bob and then I come and I'm kind of catching up and they might have sent 40 messages each in this one channel. And in one scenario, they're having like a really passionate debate about something that's very important to me. And there's a whole bunch of salient points on both sides and I want to take it all in. And other times they're trying to figure out some problem that's happening now that isn't especially important. And by the end of the conversation, they solved it. And so I don't really care what happened in that conversation. Being able to tell the difference between those two is something that is beyond the ability of any systems that certainly that we can design, but I think that anyone can design at this point. So it's going to be hard to get that perfect, but we're putting a lot of effort into making you as a user of Slack, feel more able to step away from it completely and trust that you're going to be able to come back to it. So I'm, I'm fascinated by that last problem because I think that it is a really central one, not just to Slack, but to a lot of the informational commons right now. I think that we've created, I'll, I'll just speak for my own, my own job in my own industry. But if you're a writer at Vox, I think that you have a feeling that because important things sometimes happen on Twitter, you should be keeping up with at least a representative Twitter list that is going to that is going to keep you informed. That there are a bunch of rooms in our Slack that you should be keeping up on. Again, most messages in there you really don't need to worry about. It's people talking about you know whatever, but occasionally there is something you need to worry about. There is something that was a maybe not a ping to you, but an article idea that you wanted to see. There's your email. There's Facebook. There's all these different things, and that it is not like handed down from me that you have to be on all of this. And one of the things that I think has become very difficult for people uh, in, in modern workplaces, or at least modern workplaces that are, are heavily built on, on information flows, is that there is a feeling that part of your job is keeping on top of these endless streams of communication, and that that is actually not the job. And somehow we've created this work-like stuff that is not quite work, but sometimes contains work in it. And it's really interesting to hear you frame it as a technical problem because I never really thought about it that way. But it does seem to me that cracking that is a very big work-life balance challenge because it's not that anybody's manager wants them to feel that they have to be on top of this much stuff. I think that it probably takes away from people's ability to do to do the core of their job. But on the other hand, I understand the addiction, the feeling of anxiety because I, I have it myself. I did a long interview with um, Walt Mossberg for a piece that he wrote um, like I don't know, four or six months ago or something like that. And you can guess whether he complained about stuff or not. Um, <laughs> but what was interesting in that conversation as he was talking about the use of Slack and that the feeling that you're talking about of being a little bit overwhelmed or feeling like there's always more to catch up on and you can't really step away. And while we were talking on the phone, I was sitting at my computer and I did a search on Google News for an article in the journal from like 2003, which, you know, just here's a summary of it. Life used to be great until just recently and then we got Blackberries and now everything is fucked up and I no one can pay attention to anything. And when you're like shopping with your kid in the supermarket, you're trying to check your email and damn it, if I could only go back, you know, 10 years prior, then life would have been good again. And when I said that to him, he pointed out that, like, oh, yeah, actually, shit, I probably wrote exactly that same article, but in the mid 90s, which was just about the advent of email in general, because I remember this moment pretty 
viscerally, like walking into my father's office in in the mid-90s, like maybe 94, 95, something like that. And suddenly everyone had computers on their desk, whereas before, maybe the accountant had a computer and no one else at the company did. But as a real estate developer, and so there was like downstairs, there's architects and draftspeople, and they were all working on computers, and the business people were all working on computers, and the receptionist had a computer. And suddenly all this stuff got computerized that wasn't previously computerized, and on the one hand, you got these amazing superpowers of things that you just like almost wouldn't have been possible at all, like spreadsheets. When VisiCalc and then like later Lotus123 and Excel came on the scene, people could build these mathematical models and spreadsheets and performance that they just like would have taken a team of a dozen people and would have been incredibly expensive and time-consuming to make minor changes with and and... Now they could do that instantaneously and they can cause things to just recalculate by changing one little formula. So you get that and you get this like magical word processor that can do the layout and the fonts and stuff like that and gives you all this power. And then all the extra productivity that you get is like often used up because now you're going to make a spreadsheet for everything. And now rather than dictating a letter to a professional typist, you're in your office using Word by yourself and trying to figure out why the fucking tab stops got set up over there and you can't make the formatting look the way you want. You're editing the same sentence over and over again. So we, as human beings, find a way to like <laughs> to waste most sur surpluses that technology hands to us. But I, I don't think this is like a brand new thing that, that is unique to Slack. This is a, another step on this same road of, oh shit, email used to be easy to handle before I got a BlackBerry. And oh shit, my communication with my coworkers used to be easy to handle when it was paper, paper memos and like little cubby holes and telephone calls. There has always been a great deal of non-work or I can't remember how you said it, but it was great. Like work-like activities that consume a huge portion of people's day that have always been there long before we even had computers on our desktop, but we just get new and fancier and more cognitively challenging, perhaps, ways of doing that as as technology marches on. Something that has struck me in this conversation is you have referenced a lot of history a couple theological and philosophical texts uh, talking about sort of old Gregorian churches. What do you read at night? What are your non-slack interests? Sad thing is that now I read Twitter. Um, <laughs> I just got an, like lit literally last night I was in Target and I was picking up some like contact lens stuff and and I finished the audiobook that I was listening to the first time I ever listened to an audiobook, the Tulguan Checklist Manifesto, and I'm like. With all this junk in my underneath my arm because I didn't have a basket, I decided to actually sign up for an Audible account and like get the next book that I wanted to listen to. So I'm trying to do it. Like I'm really, I try to read. I actually reread George Saunders' collection of stories, Tenth of December. It's a beautiful book. Recently, but it it is such a beautiful book. But it's really, I found it like I used to read all the time. Like you know, at least a book every 10 days, but probably a little bit better than a book a week. And now it's like two books a year or something like that because of this hyper fragmented, you know, talk about like having to check Slack when you've, when you're not in the office. If you think about, I'm probably a particularly extreme example, but I think this is not totally unique, certainly among younger people or people younger than me is 
a pause or a caesura has happened in my mind. I'm finished whatever I was doing or I've stopped paying attention to something. Now, let me pick up my phone and see, should I check Snapchat and see what's going on? Should I check Twitter? Should I check Slack? Should I check my email? Should I check Facebook Messenger? Should I check Facebook itself? Uh, you know, like there's just, I will never run out of things to check ever. There is no, okay, well, now I'm done with all the all of the things on the internet that concern me, certainly none of the, like those feeds and streams. I don't want to underestimate the degree of challenge on the design side of being able to, to handle those things. But I would like to try to carve out more time because when I actually go for a walk in the woods, like I went, I went to a wedding this weekend that was like deep in a forest grove, which was super, super nice. And I haven't um, done that in a while. And the weekend before that, I went to go visit my parents who have a kind of cottage on an island called Hornby Island in between Vancouver Island and the mainland in British Columbia, which is you know, obviously very quiet and by the ocean and beautiful. And it's easy to forget that world. And it's easy to forget the the beauty in a lot of fiction and a lot of poetry. And it's easy to forget like the really wonderful feeling of reading an interesting bit of philosophy or history or politics or economics and um you know, I, I think I get some of that because something pops up in Twitter and it's a long read, you know, like right. there's almost a, a culture of like, you probably read some of the same things that I did in the last month because they were popular among enough of the people that we'll have in common in Twitter. Like the four months the guy spent as a prison guard in a for-profit prison or something like that. So you do get longer, more reflective pieces, but I definitely feel cut off from a good deal of human experience, both in the physical world and in, in art, collective intellectual history, because I'm dominated by checking Twitter and everything else. Yeah, I, I really do believe, I mean, and this is one reason why I'm a bit, I'm not skeptical of the idea that we had these same problems 10 years ago. We clearly did. And 20 years ago, and people used to have to read the whole newspaper. And uh, I mean, we've been accelerating the amount of information we push at people for a very long time. I do think we've gotten better at creating habit-forming products. I, I think that we've gotten better at creating a little bit of addiction to that little bit of dopamine release of, did I get an email? Is there a tweet I want to look at? This feeling of... One reason I think Twitter is particularly, and I use it a lot, but particularly poisonous from this dimension is that it has an urgency that is not very real, but is very salient, certainly in terms of how I experience it. So look, I got New Yorkers on my bedside table and books on my bedside table. And I know that if I don't read them tonight, they're going to be there. And Twitter, it feels like if I don't check in, I'm going to miss something that will be gone forever. I will miss the recommendations. I will miss the joke of the night. I will miss whatever it is. And You'll miss whatever just happened with Katy Perry and uh, – I'm not Katy Perry. Uh, Taylor, Taylor Swift, Swift and, and Kanye, uh, which is my favorite story of the week actually. Um, but And so it creates this thing where you feel like you have to keep checking in because it's ephemeral. And – it makes it feel like the scarce resource is the tweets and not your time. When in fact, like what ends up happening is I check Twitter too much and don't finish The New Yorker or don't read the long read I put in my Insta paper that week. And that is something that I'm sure it has its benefits as well as its drawbacks. But I think we've gotten good at manipulating our feelings of urgency and loss aversion in ways that are ultimately 
a little bit maladaptive. And certainly as a journalist, one of the things that I think about a lot is that in my guise as a writer anyway, that if I'm just reading the same tweets as all of my other competitors, I'm probably not going to be able to write anything different than they are. And that it's the time that I'm somehow able to rip away to spend reading things they don't read or talking to people they don't talk to that will give me something new. But it's it's getting harder. I think like I think a lot of folks in the media are converging on the same the same information streams that make the hurting behavior and the sort of consistency of thought a whole lot worse. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's tough. My ex, Katarina Fake came up with that phrase, fear of missing out, FOMO, for exactly that and for a whole bunch of other phenomenon, the fun things that you could be doing this weekend when you're not there, which are thrown in your face because people are tweeting or Instagramming or Snapchatting their experience at Coachella or something like that. But I don't, I don't know that there's any solution to that other than the the development of some internal discipline and then carrying it out. Like I, I listened to you and, and David Chang and... You're a vegetarian, and that in today's society requires some kind of discipline. You know, like the the food options aren't always simple or easy, but certainly your food choices, regardless of whether you're a vegetarian or not, are challenged by the infinite free calories where there actually are like literally scientists in a lab trying to figure out which powders they could dust the Doritos with that are going to make you more compelled to eat more Doritos. I mean, there's no... You could imagine that there are people working at Facebook who are doing that, but they're not so, uh, I don't know, explicit about it that they actually think of that as their job, whereas the, the fast food companies really do think about that as their as their job is to try to make, like, hit little receptors in your brain that are going to make you more craving of a double down at KFC after you've had one. <laughs> so in the same... You know, we have to make some discipline choices about how we spend our time, or, you know, whether we get to go outdoors, whether we have enough exercise, what kind of food we eat. Those same choices have to show up in our media consumption. And I say use media in like the absolute broadest yeah. sense there. So I'll tell you something weird just on, on the vegetarian note, which I do think relates to this conversation. So for a long time, I tried to just eat humane meat. And I found that that's not a particularly restrictive thing to do. As you say, it's a, it's easier than being a vegetarian, but I found it really hard. And then I tried to do something where I only gave myself like two or three meat meals a week or then maybe a month. And I found that hard. And then I was actually went vegetarian and I found that oddly enough easier. And recently my, my wife has been vegan for a long time and I've gone, I've gone vegan and I've actually found it easier than any of the others because it took away choice and it took away options. And as much as it is more restrictive, it's sort of the equivalent of deleting Twitter off of your phone versus just telling yourself you're only, you're only going to check it 20 minutes a day. Somehow it has just taken some of the anxiety out because I don't have to be thinking that hard about it. I just, you know, I know the places I can eat. I know what I can eat. And I don't spend a lot of time thinking about where did this meat come from or uh, where did this, you know, are there bacon bits in this or whatever it might be? And and I agree with what you're saying about discipline, but, but I, I like to read a lot of behavioral economics. And one of the things that I've come to doubt very much is, is discipline in the moment. I think that a lot of discipline comes from creating structures when you're feeling rational that then help you when you are not going to be as rational. I'm going to be much better at setting up boundaries for myself when I'm not in front of a buffet than when I am. And so if I try to do it in the moment, I often I often find that I fail. 
that's fascinating. So uh, speaking of books that I read, a book that's coming out in September is by um, philosopher and game designer named Ian Bogost. And if you've heard of him, you probably heard of him from that game Cow Clicker, which was like a an art piece statement about Zynga's games, which actually became popular in its own right, even though the, the whole point of it was to show the banality of kick, clicking on cows. But his book is about the the role that play has in in psychology and in culture and a bunch of other things. But the part that's, that's really relevant and fascinating is there's kind of a malaise now where people don't even know if they're being ironic um, or not when they post Instagrams of the hipster food that they're eating. There's so many choices and there's so few anchors and there's so few constraints that it it all feels overwhelming and everything feels fake. You know, like if you do have infinite free food at the buffet, none of the food tastes nearly as good. It's not just the paradox of choice, like the old Barry Schwartz stuff. I mean, I'll, I think that's true as well. But there is this super modern, super abundance of everything, how you can spend your time and how you can divide your attention. And those moments of like solemn appreciation, I don't mean solemn in like the sense of being a downer about stuff, but like actual contemplation and awareness of the meal that you're eating, the company that you're keeping, the you know the view that you have or whatever, become harder and harder. And I think you're, I'm not actually that surprised that it's, it was easier to be fully vegetarian than to have to make that choice constantly about whether you're going to spend one of your 20% times now. I'm surprised that veganism is even easier. But, but you know, having those hard constraints, I think, makes a huge difference to people because trying to for me anyway, as an executive, the number of choices I have to make is overwhelming. It definitely uses up all the glucose and I believe in decision fatigue. And so like any superfluous decision that I have to make is agonizing. You know, like I, I hope no one ever asked me any extra question of any, you know, <laughs> I like people just <laughs> to decide stuff for me or to have rules that decide things for me. Are there strictures you have put on your life to help with that? kind of decision fatigue or to create more of those solemn moments? Um, no, and I should. I mean, I kind of bounce around from thing to thing. I did this thing called, um, I have terrible self-discipline in, in every regard. So if I didn't have a trainer that I went to the gym and like there was an appointment, then I just wouldn't go to the gym probably ever. But I tried this thing called the no-ass diet, which was some guy made it up, which was not actually a diet at all. It's just no sweets, no seconds, no snacks, except for days that start with S. And it was just like such a simple <laughs> rule and so easy to follow. That's wonderful. I really like that. Yeah. But the thing that I really liked about it was if you don't snack, like your grandmother used to say, it would spoil your appetite. It's actually true. And you dinner is like so much better because you're hungry at dinner time and you're hungry at lunch. If I modify that at all, I found like if I decided, oh, you know, it's someone's birthday at the office today, so I'm not supposed to have any sweets, but I'll, you know, I'll just do this one thing. Then it just like all falls apart. Whereas as long as you're holding on to the actual rule, like the rule is making the decision for you, then you can keep going forever. And I'm sure that there's a whole bunch of academic research on exactly that phenomenon. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. So I, I typically close things out because I want to be respectful of your time here by asking people about books that they've read. But I actually want to ask you a different question because I have never gotten into any of the adult board game world. And so what are three board games you would suggest for someone who, like the last board game they played was Monopoly? Good question. 
So Settlers of Catan, I'm going to choose, first of all, because it's a great game and it's not that hard to learn, but just because it's so widespread and you're much more likely to run into people who have played it and much more likely to run into someone who has a copy of it. And by the way, you know, slight digression. Digress I once away. tried to figure out or ask some people, why so many of these board games were German? And the answer was that there's sort of like a really strong tradition of playing board games in Germany, especially with family time. And that's because there's like more vacation, um, there's less working on the weekend, there's less working on the evening. And so it just became this kind of culture institution. So like all the big board game shows, like the equivalent of CES, but for board games are all in Germany and all the big prizes for board game designer in Germany. And most of the interesting and popular games that people play in North America um, are all coming from there. So uh, Settlers of Catan, Ticket to Ride, which is a train game. There's like a, several different versions of it. The simplest one is the US version. And, and like that one's easy enough that you can play it with kids. I think Settlers, you, you know, maybe an eight, nine-year-old who's pretty pretty smart would be like the youngest that could possibly play it, but it's probably more like for, for teenagers. And then the last one is called Coup, which doesn't actually have a board, but it has um, cards. And it's a great game for bluffing, and it's really quick. Like, it takes like five to ten minutes to play a game, so it's like a little bit like liar's poker. So, Settlers of Catan, Ticket to Ride, and Coup. Which one would you tell somebody to start on? Again, probably Settlers, just because there's going to be the it's the biggest in terms of people's like the, you know the overall cultural imagination, and you're most likely to be able to find other people who want to play it with you, which is the big challenge of board games. And actually, going back to the very very beginning, one of there's a game called Diplomacy, which is no dice, very complicated, all about backstabbing. Would take a whole day to play. It was Winston Churchill's favorite board game, but it's almost impossible to actually play because you have to find people who are into it and who are willing to spend that time. So it was very popular to play by email in the very early days. So there's like a nice crossover of board games and the early internet and being able to find people who shared this interest with you, which you would never get in the real world. So I, I played in, as, in grad school, like, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of games of diplomacy by email. What is something you believe about the state of the world today that you think is true that most people think is false? That's always a tough one. But if I had to choose, uh, and there's, there are other people who believe this too, so, but I don't think it's widespread, um, is that we are very much still at the very beginning of the application of the internet as a technology to human life. Like where if you think about the equivalent point in electrification where like in 1901 or something like that. And that has the potential to change the way that we work and interact in all kinds of ways that we don't yet understand and have political and romantic and religious and social implications that are going to reverberate for like for thousands of years. I think the internet as a technology more broadly is as I would put it in between written language and spoken language as like the second most important technology of all time. So like way ahead of domestication of animals or division of labor or steam engines or wow. telephony or anything like that. So so what have you seen or heard about that is being developed right now that feels most exciting to you from that perspective? Is there like an app or a software or hardware or something that you feel is going to be that next jump that takes us up that curve? 
this is a pretty common answer at this point for a lot of people, but and this isn't about the connection of people, but just the in the same way that written language allowed us to accumulate knowledge across generations and kind of like accrete this scientific knowledge that could be built on this like artistic heritage that can be built on the interactions that I have with Amazon Echo like it's just that new modality of interacting with the internet and being able to extract information whether it's like you know how many ounces are in a cup or something like that while your hands are dirty in the middle of cooking or being able to play any music because it's it's almost like I just thought of it um, obviously, I said it out loud so the computer can understand it. But it, the the difference between that and like picking up my phone, turning it on, navigating to the app, waiting for the app to open, hitting search um, in a, the Spotify list or whatever, and then finding the thing and then tapping in, getting it to play, like just the removal of that little bit of friction really changes the experience. So that's one step on the way to you remember the movie Her mm-hmm. that verbal interaction with something that actually understands your intent and can provide things for you. That's that's something that's really interesting to me. And finally, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? All glory is fleeting. Take that one. A little Ozymandias. That's good advice. Yeah. Stuart Butterfield, thank you very, very, very much for spending the time. Yeah, thank you. Great to talk to you. And may your glory not be fleeting. Bye-bye. If it lasts another uh, couple years, I think I'm all set. I've had enough glory in my life. Thank you to Stuart Butterfield for being here. Thank you to my producer, AC Valdez. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox.com and Panoply production. I hope you're all reading Vox.com. You really should be. I will see you next week. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.